0: Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. This is the podcast that reminds you that it's within. Your ambition, your purpose, your story, it's all there. We just help you unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. And in a moment you'll hear a conversation with myself and Professor Damien Hughes speaking to a great leader. And as you know, in the last few days, we have lost a great leader, Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II. And the reason why she was a great leader is because she was a great follower. The very best leaders have a North Star, have principles, have guiding lights which they follow. Now, for Queen Elizabeth, that guiding light was religion. And it doesn't have to be religion, and it doesn't have to be faith. But all great leaders do need something something they truly believe in something that guides their every decision and i wanted to share with you um, a reading that the queen shared over 20 years ago because i think it speaks to the power of high performance
1: go forth into the world in peace be of good courage hold fast that which is good render to no man evil for evil strengthen the faint-hearted support the weak Help the afflicted, honour all men.
0: So the Queen talks there about peace, about courage, strengthening others, honouring everybody. And that's exactly what we aim to do here on the High Performance Podcast. We want you to get peace and courage from these episodes. We want to support you in your own journey towards high performance and we want to strengthen you as you walk forwards. So this episode, which is dedicated to the memory of... Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II is a conversation with a leader and you'll hear a conversation with a leader who also has a guiding light behind him. Here's what to expect
1: on today's episode of the High Performance Podcast. When I came second, my father didn't talk to me for the week because he said you put shame on the family name. I was just going to retire, just had retired when I got the call from Doralden. For me, I would not have taken any other job In the world, they said, This is your team. All the people work for you. And you have to make sure that they love you, that they want to work for you, that they give the very best for you, that they work very hard for you, and that they are happy and proud if you win because they work for you. They don't work for me, they work for you. So welcome to our fourth high performance podcast episode
0: with a leader in Formula One. We've spoken with the Mercedes boss Toto Wolff, Red Bull's Christian Horner, Zach Brown from McLaren just a few weeks ago and now we're joined by the CEO and team principal of the Williams Formula One team, Jost Capito, um, a German leader who has been involved in motorsport for many years and I actually found this a really, really wonderful episode to record. I think that we are so obsessed with people being loud and brash and using words to tell you what they want you to think. But there's that old phrase, isn't there? I can't believe what you say because I can see what you do. And I think the, the magic about yours that you're going to hear in the next hour is that he chooses his words carefully and you absolutely buy into and believe what he's saying because his actions back up what he says. He will talk about his upbringing. I mean, he shares with us the most remarkable story from his father and how it shaped him and how it inspired him to do what he does today. But he also shares what it was like turning up at Williams during a pandemic, trying to turn around a team who were used to losing, changing that mindset, dealing with people that didn't come on the journey, protecting one of his drivers when he was getting death threats after being at the centre of the way that the Formula One season ended back in 2021. And it's great to hear him talking that way. Um, I also love the phrase, words are free. It's how you use them that may cost you. And this is a man who has incredible integrity. Um, he chooses his words carefully, but the words that he delivers, I know, will be really beneficial to you. It was a pleasure to go to the amazing, historic Williams Formula One factory and speak to a man who is totally honoured by the fact that he is in charge of that famous old Formula One team. So our latest episode with a team principal from Formula One comes next. Welcome to the High Performance Podcast, Yost Capito.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: let's start as we always do what in your mind
1: represents high performance oh, you start with a difficult question so you know high performance is you can have in various areas all my career I was involved in high performance cars and that's what i always wanted to do when you define what a high performance car is it needs to be high power output Fuel efficient, sporty chassis, good handling, good brakes. So I think that that shows that high performance is not one attitude. High performance is every attitude on the product or on the project you want to achieve. So it's very difficult to explain. For the car, I think it's much easier to explain than um, you have high performance humans. I think that's also very complex. It is dedication, it is loyalty. You have to make your objective your living if you want to be really high-performing. And then it's again high-performance team that is then again more complex. Just a couple of high-performing people don't necessarily become a high-performing team, isn't it? Because the, the dynamics within the team has to be right. So you have to get the right people together to create a high-performing team. It's not just get the biggest high performers, put them together and then having a high-performing team. I think that it's that's never the case. And to say getting the right people together
0: to create a high-performance team is easy. Doing it is very difficult. We're talking to you here in the beautiful, experience centre at Williams and you just look around here to see the history of this incredible team and you came in at a time when Williams was struggling, things were very difficult and your job was to find high performance within this team. So can we go right back to the day that you walked in the doors of the Williams Formula One team and I guess the first thing is, how did you decide to work out what was here to see the truth
1: of, of this team? You know, I started in February last year and that was the covid times so I couldn't even come here <laughs> so I had to start from home in Germany. And I think if you if you get into a company that's eight hundred employees and you can't introduce yourself in person. You can only do it through teams or yeah, through yeah, through teams especially or through radio or through telephone. It's it's a complete different situation. And as I knew that was going to happen, I prepared myself and say how how should I do this? And I I read a couple of books and got some information from the internet. Have people done that before? What is important? I found um, that uh, on one book that a person, a guy who came in as new CEO, did questions to the management. And I thought this is quite a good idea. We have about 80 managers and directors, managers. So having the same questions to all of them in a half an hour session so that's what, what I did. We had First we had a town hall where everybody could dial in and then I scheduled the meetings with every manager for half an hour and sent them the questions up front. And what were they? I think there were five questions. What would you like to change or what has to be changed? What has not to change? What would you like to change? What advice would you give me? And what would you advise me not to do? So those were the five questions to every single manager. And some said, okay, yeah, I sent you the file. I wrote it down and they said, no, no, I want a discussion. I just don't want to read the answers. I want a discussion, so don't send me anything. And that was really exciting. And why was that important for you to have the discussion rather than (laughs) see it written? Because if you see something written, you don't know really is that what is the real meaning behind it, isn't it? And if you have a discussion, you can ask the questions, you can, and then you get much more out of uh, out of it than just reading something. So even if they had prepared it, they had to tell me and not sending me to read it. So that for me, it is important to, you know, in the voice you hear also what. You hear more than when somebody tells you something, then you read the words because you get more emotions, you you get more feeling. What what does the person think about it? What does he feel when he says that? And out of those five questions, Josh, which one gave you the most revealing answers? I think all, but then you could see, you could see when and I clustered the answers and it came up that, so what do you want to have to change or what should be changed? You see... You came up to four or five things that always got repeated. When I say what should be not changed and it was very much what not should be changed is the name Williams, the heritage, should be be important, should not be forgotten and the, the family feel of the company. So that was, I think, 80% said these three. So then you get, I got the feeling, what's really important? And when you see three, four things that 80% think that should be changed, it's pretty clear that those are the things that should be changed. And then you have to set the priorities. And with that, I could easily set the priorities, what has to be made clear that is not changing. So coming then in the team and say, look, it's very clear, the name will stay. We'll keep the museum. The heritage is important for us. yeah. And the way you work and the family feeling we have as a family-run business, this will stay. So that gave then the whole team the confidence that, that there is consistency, a continuity, and that they can continue feeling the way they, they feel. And what was the overarching message for what needed to change? The overarching message for me to change is to create processes improve processes and to increase the efficiency and also the getting getting rid of silos yeah? to increase the cooperation within the different areas. That was the main thing that, that was said that has to change and I would say this is the hardest thing to change. And that comes then was the overarching meaning was that needs a culture change. But I'm, but I'm surprised you mentioned the silos
4: when people had told you that that family dynamic was very evident. How do you feel that silos had developed, even when you had that kind of family dynamic in the wider business?
1: It's a, it's a very good question, and you have to see how that, how that comes. I think when you have a family business that is quite small, then it is quite easy, the communication is pretty simple. yeah, Because everybody knows everybody, everybody talks to everybody. When you get to a certain size, this is not working anymore. And if then, if you continue like this kind of communication, then a lot of things get lost and then the communication gets split into various areas. So you have a communication in design, you have a communication in the shop floor, you have a communication somewhere else and they are not necessarily the same. Right. Yeah, So to get the same thing again, you need to lots of communication to everybody and in the same way so that you get the same, the same feeling back again. But that needs systems to do that and it needs a process to do this. And that's what we established.
0: And this is very helpful for people that listen to this who are business leaders, but also, you know, parents making sure they communicate better with their kids or... Teachers, lots of teachers, listen to the high performance podcast as well. So you've had this message loud and clear from this place that people are working in silos, the processes and the communication is not good enough. Then you finally get a chance to come here to Wantage to meet the team. How do you how do you practically
1: go about making these changes? Yeah, the first thing is again when I came it was all covid and nearly everybody was working from home then i was here but nobody else was here really so that didn't make it make it easy but we established town halls after every race so every monday tuesday after a race we could set up the teams meetings where everybody could dial in And uh, so we got the information about what happened in the race and what also to discuss what has to be done for the next race. And it's not just a race team, isn't it? We've got 50, 60 people going to races, but we've overall 800 people. So it's the vast majority is staying home and working at home. And they have to identify themselves with what's going on on the racetrack because that's finally the delivery of what everybody does. So that's communication. Then it needs a lot of communication also. So from HR, what's going on? And it also needs uh, for me to walk around, yeah. And I uh, say the engineering office was really empty at that time because everybody working from home. But the shop floor was busy because you can't produce the parts from home. So I think that was quite important to get to be seen and to to have an open door policy. What I did before I arrived, I said I don't want to sit in an office. So I have never been here. I say take the walls off. I want to sit with the assistant, with the secretary in one area and I want the sofa there and I want the TV there and I want it to be like a living area. And as I, I, I always like to have an open door policy. So we even took the doors off. So there is no uh, there is no barrier to come and, and see me. It's a literal open door. So
4: one of our previous guests was Toto Wolf, who told us that he encountered a little bit of cynicism from the shop floor when he first came of people that said, I've heard all these grand visions and great words in the past, but I'll, I'll judge you on your actions. And he said that was a really good reminder to him that it was actually about delivery rather than just talking a good game. When you would do, have this open door policy here in, in Williams, have you ever received any sort of direct
1: feedback from the shop floor that's... the that you've been able to take on board and implement? Uh, there was quite a hesitation for people come to see me in my office. I think it's quite a big step to go in the second floor and go to see me. I had a good experience with skip-level meetings in the past. When I worked at Ford, that was a must for every manager to have that I think once a year, twice a year. And um, I found it that helpful that I always did it with every job I had thereafter. So in the skip-level meetings is that everybody can apply to see me, so just to
4: explain the origin to that term. Skip a uh, skip level, so you go to
1: the level above your boss. Yeah, so everybody, everybody can. So it's any level you want any level a- any anybody who wants to talk to me wants to see me can go in these meetings right. can apply and this is much easier than just go up there and ask for a one to one isn't it so and in those meetings i think they are really excellent because i'm then we have 10 15 people and we have one and a half hour and we talk about everything everything Brilliant. people bother want to know and this is not just for me to get the information, it's also for me to give information that I see what people, what, what, what my colleagues are bothered about, what they want to know, what they're worried about, yeah? That it's very useful. But also the interaction, if you have from all various departments and you have all different levels... You have managers, you have a guy from the shop floor, you have a cleaner. They, they have never met each other. Yeah? They don't know what they work. They don't understand what is the issues of another department. And then you very often find, ah, oh, we have the same issue. Or, ah, oh, we had this issue, we found a solution. And this interaction in these kip level meetings is fantastic. So those are the meetings I appreciate most. And uh, I think they are really excellent also to get the, the silos down because the people know each other, then get to know each other, understand other, other people have also issues. It's not just only I myself have issues, it's everybody. And uh, I take these issues then in a management committee and it's all then anonymous. I don't say who said what, but then we discuss these issues in a management committee and decide solutions. So, and that gives then the feedback, then gives the employee and say, Yeah, you know, I went in that meeting that and, and something has been done. Yeah, it's not everything can be solved immediately, but, but I think a, a fair amount. So, I can see how that fits within that earlier phrase you
4: used around you had to change the culture here when you came in. But I've also read the comment that you made that the culture seemed to be almost like downbeaten by the performances. And again, one of our previous guests was Paul McGinley, the Ryder Cup captain for Europe in the golf, where he'd spoken about some advice Alex Ferguson, the football coach, had given him about, you always want to be the hunter, not the hunted. And it sounds like when you inherited it, it was a culture of feeling that you were being hunted. So how have you gone about addressing that mentality
1: shift? You know, we have to say that and in, in the years before the before the Williams family sold the team, they they had difficult times on the financial side, on the sponsor side. So there was not, not a huge amount to invest and to take the team forward. It was very much in survival mode. And with that survival mode, when you see the other teams invest and move on, then if you can't do it, you feel like, yeah, of course we can't be competitive because we can't do this, we can't do that. And then you get to a feeling the team says, okay, it's it's fine, we are good where we are. yeah. And if you are then a couple of years really last, it is, you know, okay, as long as we were there, this is good enough, it's fine. We are part of that and, and this is fine. But then to get this back and say, we can do better. But it's not that easy either because we have the gap to the bigger teams. Yeah, they had done the investment. We haven't done the investment, so you have to catch up. It's not like not with the cost cap now that everybody is on the same level. Everything the others have invested in the years when Williams couldn't, they they still have it and we don't. So you have to be you have to work in a different way, and that it's more difficult than to get the the spirit back and say we can still beat them. And it's not, we will be world champion in a year or two, but there are other teams, they are not that far away, they are not that far ahead, so we can beat them. If we get more efficient, if we get better, if our spirit gets better, if our teamwork gets better and our processes get better and if the silos go down, then we we get in a position that we can move up. And I believe if a team is, or everybody is on the move up, then you say, oh, why well, you don't need to stop there? You can do more. So what's next? What's next? And if you get this mentality and, and spirit in the team, then you can move up to the very top. Because if you come from the very down, if you can go to eight, seven, six, then you are, have that dynamic that you can really get even better.
4: But a survival mentality though, Josh, often means that people become short term, they become reactive, They they become cynical in lots of ways. So... How did you get them to start being long-term optimistic and to have this can-do attitude
1: then? Can you give us some tangible examples? What I have to do is to, again, give the people the message and see how good feels, how it feels if you're good. So how I felt when I was good, when we went the Volkswagen the World Rally Championship, that feels good. And uh, get also in the team what the experience they had, what feels good. Yeah? And then say, yeah, we want all to feel good again. So then we push. And that's why the first points last year were so important. Because it was like, oh, we can't get points anyhow. And now like, oh, we can get points. And then we got the points. Then we believed in that. And then we got the podium where nobody believed we could, we could get the podium. And, you know, it was different circumstances, of course, but, you know, you take it if you get it. And for the team to get the podium last year was, wow, yeah, we can do it and it can happen. And this kind of what good feels, then I think everybody wants to feel more of feeling good if you spread that through the team that's quite important but that has to be spread then to the home team as well it's not just the the couple of people who are on on the track so what we did after the points we did big banners on Monday morning at the entry and we said, P, we said the points, and thank you very much for hard work. So that everybody who comes in on the Monday sees we were successful, we got the points, and everybody who comes in the factory has its part. And I think that's quite important that everybody feels we can't win if not everybody is doing a brilliant job and everybody is needed. And what did you do to celebrate the, the podium that you got? <laughs> we couldn't really celebrate because of Covid, <laughs> isn't it? We yeah, I suppose that's the lot. problem,
0: isn't it? But what did you do to the team then to sort of to drive home the fact that that was the first podium this team had had in such a long time?
1: Yeah, but we couldn't do anything because everybody was was out. Huh? we we couldn't do a lot. and it was also in the middle of the season. Huh? it was the first race of a triple header, and it was Covid and uh, so it was quite difficult, and we couldn't do events. Yeah, the first time we had this spring, we had the first time we had a town hall where where everybody could come in person everything else had to be on teams so now for this year we will have a family event in september where every employee can they come with five people so they can bring friends they have an open door they can show where they work and we are also planning for the first time again after covid like we have a christmas party so i think that's even even if we do not have a podium to celebrate or anything but we have to bring the team together and you have to acknowledge if you have good results yeah Let's talk about you personally.
0: So you come into the team, you speak to your managers, they give you some feedback, but then you've got to try and work out for yourself as well what the problems are. Did you see problems that were different to the ones that were pointed out to you? And if you did, what did you identify as the single biggest problem from your perspective?
1: See, when when what was pointed out by the managers, then you have to this was if you do this in half an hour meeting you don't get to the details. but then of course I had to follow up the main thing when I categorized them and see what is the, what causes those issues. Yeah for example, we didn't have a proper project management and that caused a lot of frustration because there was there was the planning was suffering then. Yeah, And it was like uh, production says uh, design is too late, design says error is too late and uh, design and error says production is too slow. So if you don't have that clear visible planning and project management, of course, then you create this kind of, of silos. Yeah. And so that had to be done. And then also bringing uh, different whatever organizational changes that had to be done to become more efficient. Especially now, when you see Formula One has the cost cap, it's all about efficiency. So it's how much you can do with the with the money you're allowed to spend, and that means you have to work in all areas on the efficiency. And that's not that simple as it sounds. What about self doubt? Because this is, as
0: we know, a very famous team. It's on the global stage. Lots of people care about the results. Millions of people watch the Grand Prix. Did you have any self doubt? or any imposter syndrome or any fear when you walked in here about whether you could turn this team around?
1: No, never. <laughs> really? No, never, no. No, but it I, maybe that sounds arrogant, but it is not. I, um, you know, I I was just going to retire, just had retired when I got the call from Doralden. For me, I would not have taken any other job in the world. Any other job in the automotive industry or in in racing, you know, I'm I'm Formula One following Formula One Formula One fans, things I can think. It was in the early 60s I went with my father to the Grand Prix on the Nürburgring where still was the paddock in the old in the, in the old paddock and we could go to the Ferraris and touch them and it was all open. So I'm Formula One fan since then and I never ever thought I would be in the position to, to run Formula One team. Oh, that was so far out of reach, isn't it? Because that was impossible. And then, you know, when I was approached by Ron Dennis... To McLaren, that was a huge honor for me. And then, unfortunately, Ron left, and with that, um, with that, it didn't work to stay there. And uh, then, the people said you have an open, you, you have something open in Formula One. I said no. I learned so much from Ron in that time. I really enjoyed it, and was happy that I've done it. And um, I didn't come to Williams to say I have to, you know, to for me doing something isn't it it's just having the honor to to run williams and to 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 get williams back from from really from the lowest point they ever been i like think that's the only challenge that i was willing to accept and i know it's difficult it's not uh, it sounds like a fancy job but it's really a really hard working job
4: but i was really taken by that description you said about being a young boy and going to your first formula 1s with your dad <laughs> and I'd like that almost that like wide-eyed innocence now having sort of come into the world and experienced some of the harsh realities of it how have you managed to retain that that kind of naivety or enthusiasm for it without becoming cynical or hard-bitten by what you by some of your own experiences
1: i think the main thing is that well, i say that i'm i'm highly competitive Yeah. And, but it had to be the area. It's cool to be the best in math. That was not my thing, is that? (laughs) I didn't want to be the best in math, but I started racing on my 16th birthday and that's, I wanted to be competitive in, in racing. And then when I started in the industry and uh, started developing cars, high-performance cars, I wanted these cars to be the best high-performing cars and even against the highest competition. You know, when I was at Ford, I got in charge of all the STs and RS models and I'm still very proud of of these. And when I was in Ford in the US, I wanted the Raptor to be the best off-road SUV that's also on the road. It had to be the best. And we did the Shelby GT500. It, it had to be the best performance car in the US. And then if I go racing, I want to be the best. And that doesn't mean you can only get satisfaction when you win. You can get satisfaction if you move forward and you, you move towards your objective. Yeah. Coming to Williams, I know that's not the two, three year work to get it back to the top. It's, it's a five to 10 years work. But as long as you see you can move forward and you can move the team forward and you get better, that gives me the satisfaction to work hard every single day. And where did this relentless determination to be the best come from? You know, it came very much when I started racing. And when I came second, my father didn't talk to me for the week because he said, you put shame on the family name. And As a joke
0: or was he being serious? No, it was
1: serious. He didn't talk to me for a week when I came second. And I didn't have at that time the best material, most likely. So my father, he had the company, he supported other race drivers. They got new tires from him for every weekend. I did get new tires for every second weekend. and But I was competing against them. So I had to then to turn the tires around on the rim for the second race that they were still good enough. But I still, I had to beat all them. And already from, I think before I had the first race, I had... Uh, I had a piece on always on my desk that said second is the first loser. And wow. for, for me, it's painful not winning. So
4: take us into that that moment then. So you're 16, you're racing, you've come second, and then you come off and your dad's just blanking you. How did you process
1: that? I think you, if you want first, you have to love that racing to continue. Yeah. I think many would say, "Okay, then I don't go racing anymore. Forget it. Then I don't get this these hard times." <laughs> so first, you have to really love what you do. If you really love what you do, I think then I didn't feel good when I came second as well. So I think I got to the stage that I felt, yes, I put shame on the family name. So it's absolutely right. Well, not well, so you believe me. that? Yeah. You believe what it you made said that him. Believe me, yes. And then having this thing for me that was not given to me. I put it on there. The second is the first loser. I think then you feel physically bad if you're not winning. So what do you think your dad was trying to achieve at this point? I think my dad was highly competitive as well. He, he wanted to be the best in ever when we went into the Dakar together. So I won in 85 the truck category with him in a Unimog. And it was clear when we prepared for that, he was very clear to all of us, we're not going there to finish, we're going there to win. And we were the private team, there were five, six, seven truck factory teams. He said, we are not going there to finish, we are going there to win. And it was so adamant and pushed it into everybody that there was no other way, we have to win. And then we won in 85, we won the truck category, with just two trucks and four people against all the big factory teams. I think if the attitude is, it's nice to win, you never win. I think you have to have, there is there is no other option. We have to win, finally. It's not like every race or every day, but we have to win, finally. If, if that's not the objective for everybody, then we'll never get there.
0: living a life of success, winning world titles, winning trophies, but nothing comes for free. So would you mind sharing, particularly for some of the younger people listening to this, the cost of living a life of being
1: relentlessly, constantly driven to find victory? I think first of all, you, you have to find what you really love to do. And then what you really love to do, if it is racing, if it is math, whatever it is, you have to find what you really love to do and what you really love to do. Then you say, if, if, you, if you know what you love to do, you want to be best in that. Yeah? Because you, you love you, you love it and then you want to be better than others and you learn and you have to be relentless learning, try to get better. But if you love that, then you want to get better. You are, I think you have to be self-driven. You will never achieve if you, somebody else has to drive you. You have to become self-driven. And then you, you have to do a lot of compromises in your life as well. If it is family life, if it is, if it is partying, if it is, you have to do a lot of compromises. And I say for me, I have so high respect for every Olympics yeah, who does it all four years and pushes four years relentlessly every single day for this one day in four years and sets everything beside. Yeah, and it, you know that you go, if you go for any competition there, only one can get the gold medal out of, out of many. So the chance to be the best is, is quite low. And still having this vision and go there every single day, work very hard for four years, not having any family life, not, not partying, not nothing, just for this one day to achieve the very best. That's for me is the highest level of performance. And what's been the cost to you personally for living a life like this? I had to move a lot, yeah, and didn't, I think I didn't, couldn't look after my kids as much as I should have or done. But I um, think on the other side, they benefited from that as well, moving around and having opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have had if we would have stayed in one place. But it's important to always love what you are doing. That's, that's important. Only then you can do a proper job.
4: So as a father yourself, with a son and a daughter, how much have you passed on that mindset of having to be the best and, being, and placing such demands on yourself to them as your children?
1: I think that's then in the comes in the family isn't it and and if they see that is how the family life is and what you sacrifice or what the father sacrifice for for these results so when was it ford in rallying and the kids were small every time we won they got the present so every time I win the rally, because I was away for that. And, and, and then I said, but if I'm away and win the rally, then you get a present. And if you lost? If you lost, was nothing. No, of <laughs> course not. <laughs> so, and then they were really supporting and were looking forward to that, that we won the rally. Sure. We won the races. So, um, and then they went into their sport. Yeah, the the son was from three years he wants to play soccer and he he is really adamant he wants to become a professional soccer player. And he works hard for that. And my daughter went into ice skating and she did into synchro ice skating, where I think it's a very nice sport. It's you need a lot of discipline. But if they lost, would you ignore them similar to the way your father did? No. You? No, that's what I learned from them. So I did it a different way. So I encourage them that they know that they want to win, but it's, it's if you lose, you just have to work harder and you, can get, and you have to get better. So I did it a different way because I didn't think the way I experienced it was the right way. And do you think that they've been inspired to do what they've done
0: from seeing you and your work ethic and your relentless drive?
1: Well, I never asked them. I think that comes natural then. Isn't it? And uh, they have been part. If I developed the cars, the performance cars, I was involved in, and I took these home and was proud about it, and told them what we have done. And then it, it's very similar to racing as well, isn't it? So I think they have they have seen that it's they have seen that it's yeah you get something out of winning.
0: We've gone through a, a brilliant story
1: of starting out
0: asking for drivers' autographs loving motorsport in that respect, getting all the way through to running a Formula One team. What's the hardest period in all of that when you had that very short spell at McLaren? And would you mind sharing with our listeners here what you learned from a period where you made a decision that didn't work out?
1: I wouldn't say it didn't work out at McLaren. You know, I had uh, quite long negotiations with Ron to meet him, to, to, we, we got closer and I think I learned a lot from him and I highly respected him as long as I was aware that he was running McLaren, but it's a very long time. And uh, his achievements were absolutely fantastic. And I said that he chose me to to run the team was for me was a huge honor and we had long discussions. And then even the couple of months we worked together where I, I would not want to miss that. And I don't think I would be as good in the job now without that what did it teach you then that you take now into this job you know we didn't have always the same opinion but, but we could have a proper discussion and, and see where he comes from he was quite very extreme and what, what I learned from him is, is really the discipline yeah? I also learned from him things you might not do that as you should do but, like what for example uh, for example in, they were, in the engineering office uh, they were not allowed to have a coffee because it could be could, could damage the the it, the floor right so we could okay yes we'll be careful but but we can free that up a bit you have to trust people as well don't you yeah yeah and, and i was highly impressed by byron how he built the company how he ran the company and what the discipline and how he approached people and how he could motivate people that was highly impressive i'm i'm interested to just pick up on that point, how Ron Dennis
0: motivated people. I mean, he's a legendary figure in Formula One, as you say, achieved incredible success.
1: How, what did, What was your takeaway from how he motivated people? I think first of all, is as the personality he is, he is also highly competitive. Yeah absolutely highly competitive and for him winning is everything as well and and they has to win. So I think with that he could motivate the people. He was loved by his employees. He was also good fun. He was quite humorous as well when when it was the right time for that. And I think he got the people behind him. The people wanted to work for Ron. Yeah. And this is very much the same here. The people wanted to work for Frank. And this is why, you know, we we say we still all work for Frank, even if he is not around, we work for him. And for one example is we have the radios at the track wherever the neighbors are with a name and the headset, there is a radio and a headset and there is Frank's name under this and we keep that. So for us, he is around. We still all work for Frank. That's lovely. I love that. That's really nice. And what is it
4: about Frank, if you use him as an example of it that that still ripples down through the generations what like what were those qualities that people are so keen to hold on to?
1: I think it's very much similar to Ron. They were different characters, but I think basically it's the same. Frank was adamant to win, he worked hard, he dedicated his whole life to to win in Formula One and to be successful and even after his accident, where lots of people would have. Given up their dreams, he he continued, and the best and the successful area came even after that, yeah. And and how he showed the dedication, he lived in the factory, he was around all the time, and uh, I think he was also a very nice, a very nice boss, and he could motivate the people. And I think these attitudes we have to continue.
4: See what intrigues me about whether it's Ron or Frank or even talking to yourself that, like the dedication required this this singular focus on victory is is essential. But there's also an element of being well-rounded about being able to engage with people, to be emotionally intelligent, to do those skip-level meetings and just listen to people. How do you develop that side of your personality while still being singularly
1: focused on, on being the best and winning? I think first I have to make clear I don't see myself in the same category or level as Frank or Ron yeah by far not i think they are so much more superior so i don't see me in that level okay yeah. well, that, was they, my, they, that was my that was my interpretation they created no they created something they grew it up and I, I i just went into McLaren when it was all built up and i came here when it is built up so that's a complete different category and i think that's uh, that's a level i'll never achieve and uh, i can't achieve that's for sure um, but you have to be I think you have to be down to us. you have to done lots of jobs before when that you appreciate every single job in the company yeah and I did a good lesson was there at the Peridaka when we were with four guys, my brother, my my father, a friend of us and with two trucks and we had to do everything ourselves. So we had to be the mechanic, the navigator, the driver, the the chef, the organizer, we had to do all the paperwork, we had to find the sponsorship, we had to do everything ourselves and we even had to clean the workshops and we had to clean the trucks And and then you appreciate if you have done all these jobs, you know that all jobs have to have... Be done by dedication whatever the job is I think if you are then in the in the position that you have done that then I think the people feel that that you appreciate the job and that you have been in the same situation that you have done that and I think you have if you're a good leader you have no job has to be too bad too tough for you you have to be able to do everything let's talk then about making tough decisions
0: as a leader And again, I think this is really valuable for our listeners. You know, this has been a wholly positive conversation about coming in, identifying problems, helping to solve those problems, getting the team back to points, back to a podium, moving it forwards. But there's no question that you can do that without making some really hard decisions. When I say that, what decision does your brain take you to when I ask you about the toughest decision you had to take after you came here in charge of Williams? and any advice you would give to our listeners for how to make those difficult decisions
1: I think the the toughest decisions is when when you find out that a person doesn't fit really to the team
0: and you've had to make those decisions you
1: had to make those decisions and especially I think I like people so even if you you like the people that but you say from from the whole team dynamic it doesn't really fit and then to to communicate and to say, come to the clue, it's the best for us if if we split ways. Like that is the hardest decision. What when you say from the personality, I don't want to do this. Yeah. But then you have to say what is the best for the team if it doesn't help if you don't take these decisions and the team doesn't move forward. So that where I doubt myself a lot and it takes for me a long time, is that the right decision? Because it impacts somebody else's life for me that is by far the hardest and then I struggle and I have to be absolutely sure it has to be done and how do you make the decision that it's the right thing I think that it's um it's talking to to other colleagues analyzing where the issues are coming from analyzing how the mentality of the of the team works and then you might have to do changes and but this is a process for me think it takes longer than for, for other leaders, but I very much care about every single person. So if that has, an, my decisions have an impact on any person, I have to be, for me, 100 1,000% sure it's absolutely the right decision for the team and the right decision for, for this person as well because if somebody doesn't get happy the way the team works, then it, it doesn't work for, for that person as well. So that, that, but that's the hardest decisions to take. So
4: in following that sort of procedural justice, the idea of these are the, like, these are the gatekeepers, I need to pass my decision through, it sounds to me that you talk about you think about the team you think about the individual and you think about whether that helps you win if you had to give them a priority what comes first second and third in
1: your decision making criteria i don't think it is a priority i think it's the it's the whole picture if you put it all in one part it's 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 the whole picture it's not priority one, two, or if priority one, it's fine, then it is the decision. All the three have to be balanced. The reason I ask is if I'm working in the
4: engineering department here yeah. and I see that you've made a decision, I'm still six months away from a skip level meeting, so I can ask you about that decision. You're never six but months how, away. Okay. Well then um, <laughs> well a few months. But how old? No, well, not a few months. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not even a few weeks. <laughs> but how do I just have the confidence of I know you've made the decision for the right reasons? Like, what's the transparency of of, of that process?
1: Now we have these the town halls we have where we explain what we are doing and how we are doing things, and I think if you develop, if if these decisions are right, then these decisions do not come just out of my my mind these decisions come based on what what i experience within the team so if the if the team doesn't feel or see that the decision is right then it wouldn't be the right decision
0: before we move on to our quickfire questions there's an area i just want to touch on because we haven't even spoken about it yet which is dealing with drivers how you allow these individuals who let's be honest are in their minds are working in, a, in, in an individual way for themselves, how you allow them to thrive in a team environment, it's quite a challenge. But of course, you're in a unique position where you're now the leader, but you've been the driver.
1: How do you get the best out of them? I think it's important if, you, if you're in charge of drivers, it's important that you have been a driver yourself, that you understand the emotions that, that, that the driver has during a race. It goes through. I think you have to always support the confidence of a driver. You can you can still push and you can save your expectations. I think the expectations have to be clear and the expectations have to be realistic yeah and then giving them the support and making it very clear that the drivers are that everybody works for the drivers. When I started at Volkswagen and, and rallying and I came in and I went to the test just when I started from the first days and I met Sebastian Ogier for the first time and we were on the test and, you know, we had the plan, the official plan was, it was in 12 and 13 to, to get competitive To have a couple of podiums maybe to the end of the year in 14 to have a couple of wins at the end of the year and in 15 fight for the championship and i asked Seb, you know the plan that that we have and i said do you really want to be world champion in in 15 not earlier and he said of course earlier i said yeah me too but we don't communicate that yeah So we, to you and me, we want to be world champion earlier. We don't want to wait to 15. But I said, this is your team. All the people work for you. And you have to make sure that they love you, that they want to work for you, that they give the very best for you, that they work very hard for you. And that they are happy and proud if you win, because they work for you. They don't work for me, they work for you. And that created this relationship that he understood that if he wants to be world champion, he needs every single member in the team working extremely hard for him to win. And and that is where the race drivers, they have a really big ego. And they have to have. If they wouldn't have that, then they would never get on the top of any sport. They have to drive the team that the team loves him and supports him and gives the, everybody, <clears throat> gives the very best for him to win. And then we won the championship in 13. It,
0: that's interesting because when you said the
1: team works for him, I was kind of thinking, well,
0: how do you communicate that to the people here? But actually what you're saying is by telling the driver the team works for you and you work for the team, you're putting real responsibility on their shoulders yeah. to take the team with them. Yeah. Not just to drive the
1: car, but yeah. to be a leader within this team. Exactly. I say they, 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 the, the, every employee wants the drivers to see winning. Yeah, it's, they don't work for me, they work for the drivers because they are on TV, they are shown, they are sitting in the car, they have to deliver. Every single part that we produce here is the driver to make it successful. So it's pretty clear. If the driver is this halo and the guy everybody wants to work for, then you can be successful. Interesting, because
0: often people talk about not putting one person in a business on a pedestal, but that's actually a real valuable way of putting someone on a pedestal, isn't it? Can I ask you how you dealt with the issues that came Nicola Latifi's way after the accident that ended up changing the world title and it meant that Max Verstappen won it. You know, he was getting death threats. He was, across all social media, horrible comments coming his way. Would you mind taking us inside the team at that point and how you protected him
1: and worked with him through that period? We had to keep him, give him the confidence. Yeah, And we said that there is, was nothing wrong everything was fine, but it's very difficult to help them because that was at the end of the season. They all went on vacation. They said they have to take the time off. So he was not around here every single day. And uh, I think it's also, we didn't interfere there too much as we knew what was happening. We knew what was going on, that he switched his social media off uh, but if if we would have interfered too much, I think we would have made the situation even worse. But that's something everybody has to get over himself. But he was fully aware that he had our backing, that we're absolutely convinced he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, we, the crash is of course it's shouldn't have happened. But but if you are racing, you know crash can happen, and we we never blame a driver for. For that, that it's possible to crash, right? because otherwise you have to stay at home if you don't want to crash. But that's to to really give him the, the backing, that he knew the team is behind him. We don't need to talk every day, but the team is behind him and supports him. I think that was, uh, and that needs a general, let's say, relationship to me or the sporting director to the driver so that there is we don't have to talk to understand each other isn't it he knows what we feel for him and we know how he feels and he knows that and how hard was it for him it was extremely hard i think that's hard for absolutely everybody and i think whoever everybody who didn't go through this has no idea how that feels so even if you switch then your social media off, you, you, you are in contact with other people who still see it and you know it's going on and you just can't get away. And I think that was also a part why it took him quite a while in the season to, to find his competitiveness. And, and it's, So you think it did affect his driving after that? I'm sure it yeah. affected his driving after that. And it would, in fact, have affected my driving a lot. I'm absolutely convinced about this. So I can understand that. And this is why we gave him the confidence and supported him all the season. And we knew he would come back.
4: So now is the time for the quickfire round, just so. This is where we ask you a series of quickfire questions. And the first one is, what are the three non-negotiable behaviours that you
1: and everyone around you has to buy into? I think it's honesty, loyalty and dedication very
0: good what is your biggest weakness and what is your greatest strength
1: my biggest weakness is that i'm not patient and i think that's my biggest strength as well (laughs) get stuff
4: done (laughs) so what's been the biggest failure you've experienced and more importantly how did you
1: respond to that the biggest failure are you going to tell us you haven't had one? <laughs> For sure I had so many that I don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one what is the biggest? Um I think one big failure was when my first race on my 16th birthday I came last in my category. And that gave me okay you have to work harder and not giving up. I think that is if you have failure that's in German you say you know get up shake the dust off Put the crown right and move on. I think that is the... That's, you learn more from failures than you learn from successes. And, and that is... I think that's very important. And if you're dedicated, never give up. Get up and do it again. And everybody who is successful failed a lot of times before. What one book would you recommend to our audience? I think the, the book that I read and I think during school and that... I think that I never forget. Read a couple of times, and I think shaped my life is "The Old Man and the Sea" from Heming, uh, Hemingway. Hemingway, yeah. How has it shaped your life? I Think that was also. He was on his own. He got this big whale, and he fought with it. Finally, he fell in love with a with a big fish, and and then he, when he got it to the To the shores, it was eaten, so I think that is he wanted there was the fight, but the fight turned into a love story, and finally, it was not the happy end, and I think he was still satisfied and and uh, that it's to fight, and then it 's also that the competition is. It's not enemies, it's competitors and you can like and love your competitors and still want to beat them. Uh, I think that is a very, is an excellent lesson and that's what I learned from that. And also when he came to the shores, then he was on his own. There was not a big celebration or he did it for himself. And I had this a couple of times when we won the Dakar, then the whole team went back to Frankfurt for a big celebration and uh, the airport and coming. I flew straight back to Munich because I didn't want to be part of that. It was just for me the feeling to have that. When I was a team manager at Porsche and we won Le Mans in 94, when the car finished, went through the finish line, everybody celebrated. I locked myself in my office in the truck, cried for half an hour before I could get out. So it's... what What I did not have is that I always felt it a couple of seconds inside myself when there is a success, but I didn't have to to shout that out or, or be vocal or anything about it. So it just was for myself. and finally, what, have you do you have one final message for our listeners
4: of your golden rule for living a high performance life? It's
1: stay human, be highly empathic, have your objectives and follow your dreams. Damien. Jake. You know, I think we've seen a,
0: an interesting um, Jos Capito there, because I think if we spoke to the guy in his 20s who was racing cars and winning titles, and even maybe when he was winning three, you know, WRC World Championships, I think we would have seen someone who didn't have almost the freedom that he that he brought to this conversation. You know, I think the fact that he retired and kind of was was happy was complete in himself and then came back means he's not bringing his own ego to this this job
4: i think that's a really smart point jake that you're making i think the fact that he said that i've got nothing to prove here so that almost becomes liberating for you when you see about giving back you see about helping others you see about trying to point to people and say to them you're good and let me show you why you're good and you've got that experience to be able to do it, that almost becomes a servant leader, which is what I very much got the sense of him. You know, like when we made that comment about Ron or Frank, and he was quick to point out that I'm, not, I'm nothing like them. There was a real humility there that he, was a, he saw himself as a servant of his, uh, of his team rather than being the head of it. But Do you think that
0: then, because, you know, he said to us, didn't he, which was pretty shocking that his dad, when he came second in a race, his dad wouldn't speak to him for a week when he was a 16-year-old. And then he he got that sort of thing and engraved it on his own desk that second is the first loser. I find it hard to marry that up with him being happy at a team that is regularly losing. So do you think it's because all of that was about him and now this isn't about him?
4: Yeah, I think think there's something there because the significant part for me was that he didn't, take those same lessons that his dad had applied to him and do it to his own children. So I think whilst he might have accepted it in relation to him and he was willing to make that sacrifice and and put himself under that inordinate stress of believing that he had to win or he wasn't worth engaging with, that's not what he does with his children and it's not what he's doing with his own drivers and his own team. So... I think there is something in that, that maybe individually he was prepared to take on that stress, but he recognises how unhealthy that would be to apply that to others. Yeah,
0: I thought it was really interesting. And also it's a reminder to put empathy above opinion because we can all look at it and go, how has he not suddenly turned that team around? Why well, aren't they winning races? Yet yeah, he comes and tells us that for the first few months, he never even saw anybody like change a culture at a team, yeah. turn a losing team into a winning team, but you can't meet anyone because of COVID.
4: Yeah, exactly. So, but again, I think that's a really important lesson for everyone to, to hear. This that don't get caught up on just looking at results and assuming that if you come in last, you're bad. I think looking at it in terms of what's going on there, what's the process? Are they improving? What are the measures that they're doing it? And then when you understand the context of it, actually making improvements is going to be a far more significant measure of just uh, just impact than whether they're coming on a podium or not.
0: Uh, We had a really nice message from a gentleman called Andy, who said, I want to speak to you um, about two people who are co-founders of a business called Financial, a female-focused app helping women take control of their money. I used to work with them both. They were part of the senior team at Travel Counselors before launching their own tech business last year and i think they could give you a brilliant perspective for high performance they talk a lot about males as allies and families taking control of money together not leaving everything to the woman in terms of practical and mental load but positioned in an open and inclusive way i think they'd be a great fit and they're huge fans of the high performance podcast well let's meet laura laura is all of that true
5: it is and um, it's alongside my sister holly um but you've only got one of us today thank uh thankfully
0: no worries well i want to start then by talking about how Men can be better allies to women.
5: We kind of position ourselves as lifting the lid to men and women about a lot of gender equalities. And it's just interesting, obviously, the recent success of the women in the Euros and and you know Ian Wright coming out as such a big ally and and speaking openly about you know what we can all do together. And I think where we see allies in the world of finance is that. We all need to come together and work together and recognize some of these differences, but apply practical solutions to them. And so when we we often see things like female mentorship programs and it's females mentoring other females, and it's kind of like, well, why why wouldn't we just be inclusive and get everyone's help to get everyone up to the same level and, and play as a team? And so we really advocate this kind of role of the male ally um, rather than kind of this blame culture of men, which is sometimes seen or this kind of, it's not my problem position. So, yeah.
4: So where does this come from then, Laura? Where's this drive to want to level the playing field?
5: The business was an Instagram page before it was an app, and it was built, I guess, on the northern principle of speaking a bit directly about money. Um, And what we found was speaking directly about money, and actually we produced a a really simple plan that we call the Couch to 5K for money, which is anyone can start, just like when you're getting off your couch and you're running to the first lamppost. And you just need to learn just enough. You don't need to suddenly go and be a financial advisor. You don't need to be the stock market. But actually, basic money management is something that we're not taught. What we found is the demographic overwhelmingly swung towards females. So when you dig a little bit deeper and you do customer interviews and you get to know your community, it's because females tend to handle the mother load literally of um unpaid labor around the home, spending decisions, even if they've not, you know, they're not earning the wealth in the family. And we kind of thought that this is just wrong. And I just don't think lots of people know about it. People hear about the gender pay gap. So um, for those of you with children, the gender pay gap actually starts at eight. So girls get 5% less pocket money than boys on average. And it's just little stats like that, that, you know, my, my husband's a dad of two girls and every day something shocks him. And, and he wants to do more as well. So I think it's, it was an accidental fall. It wasn't a you know a passion from the age of 10 to to bring equality together. Um, But here we are.
0: And how did the podcast help with the decision to leave a business, set up your own business, all of that kind of stuff?
5: So I remember, and probably my most favourite podcast, but unsurprisingly, was the Sean Wayne episode. I am from Wigan. So yes, and actually he coached um, my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law played for his academy team for years. And it lifted the lid on on how he he operated. and, And I felt... He was very inspirational about building a high-performance team. And I, at that stage, was kind of running financial by myself as a hobby. It wasn't a business, but it was this confidence factor of actually you can kind of build a, a team that can help take this really simple product and take it to lots of people. And it was this, the realisation that it'll never hit many people and lives won't be changed if I just try and do it myself. Um I remember Sean talking about how a coach had made him feel. Um, I think he got dropped and he didn't really know why. And he said, none of my team members will ever be made to feel like that. They'll always know what's expected of them. They'll always know. And and if they haven't hit that threshold and I have a meeting with them before the game, they'll know already that they're not on the starting list. And I thought, what well, like a brutally honest, but empowering way to help your team members and help your staff. And, and that just stuck with me because I remember thinking, right now it's time to build a team. And to set out what's expected if we're going to go do something really big.
4: I'm interested about the dynamic of working with your sister as well, Laura. That that obviously brings its own challenges and its own benefits. What have you learned around that?
5: So I I poached her firstly. So poaching her for skill sets, um, she is an amazing worker, hard worker, works in partnerships. So she's worked at Manchester United before. Um, I actually approached her to join travel councils and set up the partnerships team there, actually. So I knew she had a skill set that I didn't have. And so I was focused on content creation and, and product building. But, you know, you need revenue and you need sales and you need to be able to monetize what you're doing. And so I think from a very early start, we both had big ambitions for the business. We were never going to leave careers that and um, we enjoyed and it did quite well at just to do something on the side. It was always going to be something scalable. And so yeah, I kind of signed her in the transfer window and 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 got her that way. And then since then, you know, we moved very quickly because we're sisters from Wigan. So we've had all the arguments there is to have about this, that, and the other. We know our skill sets. We know kind of how to hold each other accountable. And um yeah, you find lots of family businesses, even in the tech world, come out a little bit. And I think it's because you can just move so quick.
0: Great. And finally, what would you say is your biggest learning from the podcast that you'd like to leave our listeners thinking about?
5: I think, especially from a female perspective, it's this feeling that you don't have to be perfect, especially when you start. And so I think females tend to want to do something perfectly or not at all. And I found the podcast a little bit like The Wizard of Oz and lifting up the curtain and actually underneath most Perfect or what seemingly perfect performance is, is actually a lot of scrappiness, a lot of mistakes, a lot of real humans behind the curtain. And I think that's.
2: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust Oleum's new Custom Spray 5 in 1 gives you control with five different spray patterns
3: Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ
5: inspiration because I think it's so easy to look at someone really successful and think well that's because of genes or it's because of circumstance or I'm just never going to be able to do that so definitely the the lifting the lid and lifting the curtain and seeing what's behind all these you know high-performing people just every new episode I find something new
0: So there you go. As always, big thanks to you for growing and sharing this podcast. Listen, I just ask you to do one thing. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. Wherever you get your podcasts from, it takes you about 20 seconds, but it makes a huge difference to us. Don't forget you can join our free members club, The High Performance Circle. Just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com You'll get all the details there about things that we're planning. And finally, thanks to the whole team of Finn, Hannah, Will, Eve and Gemma. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon.